This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Greg Woodland, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Delighted to be here. Greg, I'm super excited to have you because you are our first book under our copyright agency, Cultural Fund Grant, where we receive funding to promote new Australian authors like yourself. That's fantastic. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. The copyright agency is a great supporter of Australian writers, of course. And so, yeah, we got this bit of money um, and we've decided to do seven Australian authors this year and you're our first. So um, here we go, right? First cab on the rank. Okay. Absolutely. No pressure at all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you can pull it off. So let me introduce you. So obviously you're an author, but your career has mainly been a screenwriter, a director. That's right. Since 2000, you've worked as a freelance script editor and a consultant for film funding bodies and the Australian Writers Guild. So this is your first novel, and it's called The Night Whistler, which I've got to say is a terrific-looking package. I mean, I love the cover, love, love the cover. So talk to me about your career. I guess you've been a storyteller all your life. I mean, so screenwriting and writing um, books are different crafts, but they are essentially the same thing. They're storytelling, right? I have. I've I've been writing stories since I was a teenager, really, Um, but not in a professional way. And I was an absolutely prolific journal keeper as a uh, as a young guy. I had I've got probably ten thousand or fifteen thousand pages of journals that I religiously kept. I mean, they make for very depressing reading if I want to dip into them. But uh, how old were you when you started writing a journal? Because that's unusual for boys. Yeah, I was about 20, 21, I think. And so yeah. through my early 20s, I was um, fairly, and uh, mid-20s, I was fairly religiously keeping these journals, these particular black journals with the red edges that you could get. It was one particular book um, that I liked to fill with notes. And a lot of them were about the stuff that I was reading. I was doing a, a heck of a lot of in-depth reading and working my way through at the time Henry Miller and Dostoevsky. Wow, uh, heavy Russians. reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Dostoevsky, very entertaining, I've got to say. And uh, they would really, those sort of books would really keep me up at night and I would write a lot about them. And, of course, I um, really got into Dostoevsky and his life and uh, I was almost jealous that, uh, that, I, that I wasn't uh, epileptic <laughs> at the time, <laughs> because it was so wonderful. He'd had this incredible life, and um, I was quite fascinated with him. And uh, in a way, that, that's kind of what led me deeper into crime fiction, because he pretty much wrote the first or one of the, arguably one of the first or second detective stories ever, which was Crime and Punishment. And um, yeah, I'd been a huge reader as a teenager of Agatha Christie and the Alfred Hitchcock 
um, Stories for Late at Night series. I'd, I'd read, worked my way through Christie as a, as a kid, but as I got a little older and um, I was at uni, um, I just immersed myself in Dostoevsky and, uh, and the Russians. They are incredibly entertaining. They sound very heavy, but I, I just thought he had such a great grip on suspense uh, and um, leaving you on a cliffhanger at the edge of every end of every chapter. So then your career, tell me what you did. You went to university? Oh, yeah, I dropped out of university at Uni of New England, which was very smart of me, halfway through my third year. Yeah. And, uh, got, you were nearly finished. I know, uh, <laughs> halfway through third year. Um, and I got in, became a dishwasher for a while, decided to go to Asia, do a world do a trip to Asia for six months. And so I became a dishwasher, uh, a brick scraper, and uh, joined a punk band as well, punk rock band. It was Armadale's first, I think, in about 77 or early 78. Um, And I did make it to Asia, and and that gave me a lot of fodder for writing the early stories and things I was writing and a lot of the notes that I wrote that were going to be notes for other novels, which which never did actually happen because somehow around about 84, 83, I got... um, diverted into filmmaking. I joined a group at UNSW called Opunka and um, we would make short films. I was one of the, I was the only one that turned up with a bunch of small scripts and so I was pushed into directing and hey, I became a writer-director for a few years. Tell me about that career. Um, I think at the time in um, Australia, the auteur theory was very popular. Every Australian um, young filmmaker, um, male and female, uh, wanted to be a writer-director, but we didn't all have the talent of a Woody Allen or Ingmar Bergman. And um, so a lot of us might have been better as storytellers than as directors or vice versa. And I found myself a little bit like that. I made quite a lot of short films and they did quite well. But when it came to getting a feature film up, a longer form story, I found that that was, that was more difficult. Uh, writing, I struggled with the longer form story. And I did finally come to a point um, uh, where I had a number of scripts that were pretty good and got support and came close to, very close to tipping over the critical mass that enables a film to get made. And um, But one after the other, they didn't quite make it. They always stalled for some reason around about the, June, the night of June 30th, uh, which is when you had to uh, get the money or you'd turn into a pumpkin. And uh, so my films never quite got up, but I managed to, um, I had a a career as a director, directing TV commercials and uh, uh, corporate videos, government videos, Air Force training films, all that sort of thing for for about 14, 15 years. Um, And then then I wound up getting more into the script side of things when um, my wife and I decided to move to Bundina and have a child. I had to get something that was more regular than the directing work. I got a script development business together called Script Central, and that has been my mainstay pretty much for the last 17 years. That's a, enabled me to, to uh, assess, read, um, co-write or script edit hundreds and hundreds of um, Australian scripts. 
that puts you in a great position, I think, to be able to edit, I think, makes you, other people's work makes you a better writer, don't you think? I think it does in a way, although they're different sides of the brain. The editing yes. is your, your uh, yes. left brain, of course, and yeah. um, sometimes that can be a bit too dominant. You've got to get rid of it, kick it out of the way, I think. I found I had quite a lot of trouble with that and I was able to, to you know, get into that more creative thinking once I stop, started writing novels back about eight years ago. So talk to me about the transition because I've spoken to authors like Melina Marquetta, for instance, that's talked to me about adapting her story to, the script, to a script and how difficult that was and how many words had to be paired back. And, I mean, you know, I don't know, you're looking at a, at a novel that's probably eighty or 90,000 words and a screenplay. A script of 20,000, that's yeah. right. I came from it. I came to it from the other way. Of course, they called it yeah. adapt. The Americans call it adapting sideways. I had a couple of scripts that had done very well, got a lot of support, and had both um, been poised to go in two thousand and eight. And then the uh, um, GFC happened. The global financial crisis happened, and um, uh, the distributor um, pulled out of it. Uh, out of one of them that was all set to go. So uh, having put them, resigned them to the bottom shelf, I took them out some years later. Um, two of them called me back and I started working on them as a, as a novelist. Um, I found it incredibly liberating, even though it was difficult. You had a lot more world building to do, a lot more detail to put in, but you also had the room um, to develop sentences and develop characters. And that's what I really loved to unpack these characters in a, in a way that you couldn't as much. You had to deal with them in a fairly shorthand way in a script, uh, which, which of course, is um, the ruled by the three-act structure. I want to talk about thinking about stories. So, for instance, when I think about story, it's usually always in, not that I'm a writer, but I do think about things in terms of a book, you know, it's kind of beginning, middle, ending. So just trying to get my head around this, this question for you is when you think of story, do you think film? Are you thinking visual or are you thinking of a book? I mean, I'm wondering if there's a difference for you as, as a writer. I think I do think visually. I think that's the training of, of years watching movies and thinking in terms of writing them. So, yes, I do think quite visually, and I think that's come out on the page um, of The Night Whistler. But, but I also think in terms of character, quite a lot of filmmakers begin with plot and work, work, it, work it through, outline their stories and work it through in terms of plot. I, I tend to start with character. I really love uh, complex characters and flawed characters. And uh, so for me, that's really was the joy of beginning writing books. I could um, forget, not quite, not exactly forget about structure because you've, of course, got that in mind. And I do outline, I outline uh, The Night Whistler extensively. And I had to un stop outlining it when I did my third draft or so. Uh, can you explain that to me? Well, there, you know, it's been said that there are two types of writers fundamentally. There are plotters and pantsers. Those yeah, are right. No, I know that. Yeah, <laughs> I know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm one of the plotters. Right. Um, and, and that's a discipline that, that, that I learned writing 
for film school and, and uh, film te- teachers writing screenplays. Got it. Yeah, you would plot it. As I be- when I first began writing scripts, I was I just pantsed it and I wouldn't finish them. You know, you wouldn't know where you're going. You had a vague idea, and then somewhere around about. 50 pages into a script, they would peter out. So I learned the craft of outlining, using index cards to outline um, and to work out uh, the structure. To, uh, you would write uh, a scene on every card until you had a stack of about 100 cards. Uh, and then you would organise them into Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. And um, there are all kinds of colour coding you can use too for characters. You can get quite fancy with them and some writers do. I believe Derville McTiernan, I heard on your show, talk about colour coded um, cards. She's definitely not a pencil. (laughs) (laughs) Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Dervler, I think, is brilliant. And she, she ran, I don't know if you saw it, she ran, I think it was a four-part series on writing on our Facebook page. Anyway, it's... it's no, like, I didn't see it. I must go and have a look. Yeah, it is yeah. there for anyone. Now, I watched it because I was moderating it and watched it with my professional hat on. But I tell you, I, got, I finished that four-part course and I thought maybe one day I could write a book. I mean, she really had me intrigued. So for those of you that want to write, that's the place to go. But I want to get back to that, the discipline of that. I'm very lucky because, and I feel that this is lucky, when I read a book, even though I've worked in this industry for over 30 years, when I read a book, uh, because I'm not an editor and I'm not a writer, I don't see anything other than the story. When I watch a film or watch a TV show, I don't see anything other than, I am totally immersed. I don't see the scenes, the takes, the whatever technical elements. I really am one of those people that always enjoys the story as it's told. Wow. And I think that's a real privilege for me, isn't it? You know? Yeah. But I do, I, I hate watching um, something where somebody's sitting there pulling apart. That just takes the joy out of it for me because I really, I buy it. You know, I might not like the story, but I buy the storytelling. Now, for you, and what comes across for me is the smoothness. If it's a good film, if it's a good book particularly, is the smoothness in the reading or the smoothness in taking in the story. So for me, that's when you've got plot and craft meet, right? Yeah, yeah. So talk to me about the difference, like going from a script to a book. And were you feeling that, like as you were writing long form? Because it is really so different. It is different, and um, I was very lucky to win an ASA um, Emerging Authors um, Mentorship 
And I wound so up getting... How lucky are you? You got yeah. that and you've got this copyright agency. Yeah, I, I was lucky, all right. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I wound up with this terrific um, and very tough and rigorous editor, uh, Melanie Ostell, and I worked with Melanie on my manuscript for about, um, oh, I don't know, about nine months or so. We did a couple of drafts. The first time I got her notes, she delivered about 10,000 words of, of what needed to be fixed on the, uh, on the manuscript. Pretty daunting it was, pretty daunting. But after I, I recovered... I heard Dervla talk about that too, how you accept those notes. <laughs> and after she, I, <laughs> she said that the publisher or the editor kept saying, oh, what a great book, what a great book. Yeah, yeah, blah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, what a great bit, what a great bit, but blah. And then there was, you know, more... more. Yeah, that's right. There's just a few notes I've got. So there was about 30 pages of notes. Yeah. So after I picked myself up off the floor and... Um, slept it off and, and ranted at my <laughs> wife for a bit that <laughs> this woman doesn't know what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, I looked of course at she's me. wrong and you're right. Of course she is. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, um, I read her notes again. I discovered she did know what she was talking about. And, yes, I had to admit that that was right. And I disagreed with this and that. But, yeah. anyway, I did duly go through it. And it took me about two months to address all her notes. And I sent it back to her. And I think she was impressed that I hadn't fallen down. And... <laughs> given up and so she then duly asked me would I like um uh, she had much fewer notes the second time and would I like representation uh because she's also a literary agent and, Fantastic. and course, yeah that was another huge piece of luck uh taking uh, her on as my agent and that helped get it to text of course yeah after that oh look I think definitely there's an element of luck there and perseverance but there is there's got to be talent in storytelling yeah, I think so. Talent and sheer bloody-minded persistence. I, well, to, take, <laughs> to taking 10,000-word changes, I mean, you know, that to me, yeah. is, I think I would just yeah. curl up in a heap and cry for the next 10 days. You know, I couldn't do well, that. Well, one discipline from screenwriting is that we're used to rewriting. You know, screenwriting is rewriting, as, as they say, and... Um, you are used to going back and doing draft after draft. Now, somehow I thought it'd be different different when I was writing a novel. I just thought, nah, can't be that many. Well, I was wrong, of course. I was wrong. There were quite yeah. a few. But but I actually enjoyed going back and rewriting. This is the thing. Once I get over the hurdles of um, not agreeing. And then, then of course, um, a good editor gives you the freedom of disagreeing with her every now and then. And, yeah. uh you know, every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's, that's you know, that's good. I discovered there were things that I really want to dig my heels in about and others that I, that I thought that I tried um, their way. And uh, between, you know, it is a collaborative thing, uh, this working with an a- editor. It's such a personal relationship on so many levels, I think. I mean, you know, of course it's professional, but there's that, that thing where you both intimately know the work so well. Yeah, it's quite um, flattering in a way to have somebody who knows the work, but they don't know the work quite as much as you because you wrote it. Of course, yeah. they know it in a different way and they, they have a benchmark they're trying to apply to your work, I guess. They, they can see that it can be much better and that's a great thing too. Look, I quite enjoyed the different drafts I did with uh, Melanie and then with the um, senior editor of text, um, Mandy Brett. They were both terrific in their way, um, different different approaches, and, and I just uh, I went along with it. And it's fortunate 
that yeah, I do yeah. love rewriting. So it's published now. It's out now, isn't it? Uh, yeah. No, it's out in two weeks, August two weeks. the 4th it okay. comes out. Yeah. yeah, it really is. It's called The Night Whistler. Now, what about this? And I've been thinking about this while talking to you. What about if film rights are sold of the book and it gets made into a movie, right, or a TV series? Wouldn't that have been the long way, <laughs> the long way yeah. around? Well, what have goes around comes around. Have I have, I have, I have thought about it. Yeah, it's a such a strange um, journey. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but it no. might happen. Who knows? You know, if the book sells well, it just might get a a movie or a TV series um, offer. Uh, you know, I think it would make a good TV series. It's quite become a lot more complex since it was a script. The script yeah. was only really probably a quarter of it. There's so much extra stuff has gone into the into yeah. the book. Yeah. Do you read any uh, modern-day crime fiction, any Australian crime? Like Oh, absolutely. You know, Christian yeah. White, uh, Derville oh. McTiernan, Adrian McKinty's my, probably my favourite. Um, yeah. And, uh, Do you read Michael, Ro- Michael Robotham? Yeah, I read Michael Robotham. He's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, You're really in very good company. I think I said this earlier. I've been in the business a long time. I often don't like to talk about how many years. <laughs> but when I started... <laughs> <laughs> when I started out, it really, if you were thinking crime, you really were thinking American crime or English crime authors, whether it was male or female. And really, I was a bookseller for a long time and there wasn't a lot of Australian crime. Now, I don't know why that is. There was Arthur Upfield who yes. wrote the Boney books. That, that was, in fact, the kind of the first outback noir. Yeah. Um, they've been rubbished a little bit and, you know, culturally uh, he, he kind of made his own rules a little bit and yet there's some, they're really quite well written, some of them. Yeah. And, um, yeah, uh, but now we are on the international scale, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Jane Harper, as you said. Yeah, the dry. Yeah, all of them, all of them are up there. So you really are you're walking into a genre that's um, that's very, very popular at the moment and very well respected, I think, in terms of Australian writing. Is that your genre? Do you think that is? Um, yeah. I I didn't when I started writing this about five years ago. I think the dry just came out after I started. I remember reading it on a plane. Uh, and thinking, oh, God, I think I'm going to give this book of mine a miss. What the heck? She's, she's done it really well. What am I bothering for? Anyway, yeah. then I began to realise that if they liked the dry, they would want, readers would want some other stuff in that in that genre. And then not long after, I think Scrublands came out the year after that. Which Chris I really, Hammer. Yeah. yeah, Chris Hammer. I loved that too. Yeah. And, Little by little, there were quite a few more. But Gary Disher, who, who I'm a huge fan of, has been writing in that Outback Noir, that small town crime drama, for quite a few years, quite a while before um, Jane Harper. He'd, he'd done Bitter Wash Road, I think, which I was was pointed out to me a few years back. And I read it and I thought, wow, well, that's kind of really what, where I'm what I'm trying to do, that small town, big secrets, uh, you know, cop on the wrong foot. So there's reviews coming out now. Do you want to, you've got one there, haven't you, Greg? Do you want to read that out for me? It's by a reader, Maggie the Reader, uh, what she wrote. Uh, Okay, she she summarises part of the plot and she said, my thoughts, I literally could not stop reading this. When I had to stop, I was sorely disappointed. Greg Woodland's writing style is detailed enough so that you, as the reader, believe that you're right in the story along with Hal. 
Australian slang is prevalent in this book, which I absolutely loved. I'm a big wordy. And the big reveal as to who's been stalking the family is shocking. You won't want to miss this book, four and a half out of five. Well, that's a great start, don't you think? Yeah. Well, that's a nice, nice review. I've been getting a few of them on Goodreads and so on. And uh, Good. Christian yeah. White, White liked it. And, yes. And Gary did too. They were both kind enough to write some nice uh, things about it, which is on. And are you, have you started book. writing your next book? Yeah, I'm um, about two thirds of the way through book two in the Murabul series. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. It's set about five years on from this one. I've, um, I've got an idea of uh, writing a, a few books that are each a, a couple of years on so that the cop is growing older and beginning to lose his powers and the boy is starting to grow up and he's eventually going to skirt a life of crime and somehow wind up a copper himself. But it, uh, in this second book, he's He's flirting with the wrong side of the law at the moment and the cop has to kind of take him in hand a little bit, but he's got his own difficulties too, solving a couple of alleged suicides. So, yeah, it's um, I'm right in the thick of it at the moment. Yeah. Well, we've got to wrap up. I, I've got to say, Greg, um, it's just so inspiring and it must be super exciting for you to get this book published and have it out there in the world and to great review. I mean, it's... It's fantastic, it is. isn't it? Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah, no, it's great. It is wonderful to have uh, something finished, to have this story finished at last and to, to see it out there. And right. uh, I'm looking forward to readers um, enjoying it. Well, congratulations, Greg. Thank you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.